Well, hello, this is the intro to the intro talking about the podcast that's about to come. My name's Jim, he's called Rob, and this podcast is all about, uh, well, some news about tech stuff, there's a bit about the future of work, and there's a great interview with Natalie Fee. Rob, what do you think of what we've achieved here in this recording? Oh, I'm very proud of our recording, Jim. I think we've managed to do a second remote recording. Technology seems to be working okay, despite my deep yearning to give you a, a hug and buy a beer for our guests later. I'm looking forward to another episode of Lockdown Alexa Stop. Good stuff. Well, of course, get us on Apple, on Google or wherever you get your podcasts and keep in touch with us via Twitter at Alexa underscore stop. We're brought to you in association with disruptionhub.com. Alexa, stop. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Balls. Rob, we're back recording another episode of Remote Alexa Stop. How the devil are you? Hello, Jim. Very well, thank you. Remote Alexa Stop it is, yet again. I'm in sunny Richmond today. It looks like you're in sunny Bristol. How's life with you? Yeah, it's good. Uh, the beautiful blue sky here. I managed to sneak out for a little bit of a walk during my working day earlier. Now, during the pandemic, we're going to be bringing some great guests and we're going to try and have a little bit of a slice of optimism in Alexa Stop. That's our goal, isn't it? Yes, it is. Some good news stories. And you've got one slice of optimism that I think you can uh, bring to us right now, which is that you've been perfecting your pizza dough. Do you see what I did there? <laughs> Yeah, great. Very nice. Um, I've missed this, you know. I've I really I've definitely missed this. Pizza dough, Jim. Pizza dough. Shall I? I want you to sh- share with listeners of Alexa Stop the knowledge that you've acquired during lockdown so that people can share in that knowledge. I was craving a great pizza. I uh, I'm fortunate enough to live in London where food is incredibly good and there's just so much i guess it's so competitive that the the cream rises to the top and you end up with just this amazing sort of choice of fantastic food and one of the things that is great in recent years has been the emergence of these sort of i guess fairly new school pizza places some of them started as food trucks so like pizza pilgrims and then have now sort of become restaurants and they sort of all follow a similar theme which isn't sort of essentially neapolitan style pizza so brick oven, fired with wood, very, very simple in terms of ingredients and like really thin Italian style pizza. And it's just so delicious to eat. And so I was craving it and decided that it must be possible to make this at home. And it turns out it is, but not perhaps in the way you would think. So after a a journey of discovery and lots of experimentation with pretty average pizza, it turns out that if you use all the right ingredients and you prove it in the fridge for a couple of days and you use a pan and a grill rather than an oven to cook it, you end up with amazing pizza. And that is what you're going to be eating tonight, isn't it, Rob? It is, yeah. We're recording on uh, Bitcoin Pizza Day, which you may know from the folklore, which is the day where uh, many years ago when Bitcoin was worth no money at all, some guy ordered a pizza with what now is like $5 million worth of Bitcoin. And so every year it's become a kind of ceremony that people who are involved in Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency love to sort of eat a pizza and you know, slightly laugh, I suppose, at this poor guy's fate, even though it's all relative, isn't it? It wasn't worth anything at the time. So yeah, I'm going to be having a pizza tonight in honour of Bitcoin pizza guy. And of course, what they do is pay for it in Litecoin. Yeah, which really is worth nothing now. Exactly. So if you haven't taken the jump on making pizza at home, if you Google for pizza pilgrims, pizza recipe, and they've got some really good stuff on the internet, including the guide on how to use the pan and grill and all the rest of it. 
But what you've learned on your dough is that you have to leave your dough a couple of days. It gets better with age, right? It does get better with age, just like us. But only to a certain point. Yeah, I feel like you want more detail and I'm trying to move us on. I think that's enough pizza chat, Jim. But yes, two days of proving is the magic number. The third day is good. It starts to get worse after that. Like Rob told me this earlier, I thought it was important information. I'm making our pitch to maybe get a food podcast, but <laughs> Rob's just not, he just wants to stick to the tech stuff. He even had to link. I didn't try and link any of it to Bitcoin. I mean, amazing that you managed to come up with a tech connection while we were talking about it. Yeah, and I hadn't told you that before recording either. So as a news to you as well. So what else is going on, Jim? Do you know what I think we should do? You just keep wanting to talk about pizza, Rob, and I want to move it along because it's time for the news. Yes, it's time for the news. It's the news. Oh, yes, it is the news. What have you got for me? Where should we start? Let's talk about Avatarify. Can you say that? Uh, Well, I couldn't until very recently. Avatarify. That's pretty good. Avatarify. As Jim said to me, you can tell the people that made that are not marketeers. So I greeted Jim today for our recording as Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I did that using this amazing new sort of set of open source stuff that's been made available called Avatarify, if you want to look it up. And what it is, is a set of pre-built machine learning models that enables you to puppet a face of another person and they include a bundle of nine celebrities. So Obama's in there, Harry Potter, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and, and a few others. Using Albert You need Einstein. a pretty... Albert Einstein, yeah. Um, I feel like I've missed one. Steve Jobs is in there as well. Why would you want to do this? Well, you can connect it up to, as a video source, as a camera. So you can join video calls as these people, which is quite fun. Or you could record videos and, and do you know silly sort of voiceovers and things. So it's more of a kind of tech demo than something really practical, but it's fascinating to have a play with. And the only requirement really is a a pretty high spec PC with a sort of high specification NVIDIA graphics card. And if you've got one of those, in about an hour, you can set all this stuff up and start puppeting these faces. And the other thing that you can do, which I think is even more terrifying than the celebrity deepfake stuff, is there's a thing called GAN-generated faces, which is generative adversarial network is what a GAN is. And what that means is it's, it's a kind of machine learning method where you teach two algorithms to sort of fight each other to come up with an outcome. And in this case, is that outcome is something that looks a bit like a face. Would you agree they were pretty scary, Jim, these faces? They all looked like kind of slightly Hicksville people in one way or another. They had like something that's not quite right about them, but they did yeah. look human sort of uncanny valley thing going on so so what you can do with this avatarify thing is you can press a button and it'll dynamically generate a face which looks like a human but is not actually a real photo it is generated from what a machine learning algorithm thinks a human looks like and, and it's been trained obviously on a corpus of data which will include millions of photos of people assumably just sort of scraped from public data sets and, and the internet as a whole so what you end up with is something that looks an awful lot like a human and actually, if you weren't paying attention, you would probably just think it was a, a normal person. When we were at um, South by Southwest a couple of years ago, uh, we were at a talk with Nell Watson, who did a talk for Beamer in the UK this week. And one of the questions that came up is, uh, would you work for a bot? And when I thought about that question at the time, I never imagined that bot having a human base face and a human voice. But it would, in a 
distributed pandemic world where so much of our time is on a video call, if there was a bot that had a human face and a human voice and told me to do stuff over a video call, maybe I would work for a bot these days. What do you think? I remember that talk well, as you say, when she posed the question of how would you feel about being employed by artificial intelligence that worked out it needed to hire six people to do a job more efficiently for a business? Like pick the vegetables. Yeah. Or like change the oil on the AI machine. I don't know, because that's how computers work. But another word I can never say, anamorphize. What, how do you say it? Can you say that word? I'm not sure what the word is you're trying to say. Anthro- anthropomorphize. It's when you make something seem human. Okay, good. Anthropomorphize, where you give kind of human characteristics to an animal or an object. It's something we can't resist doing. And I think actually in the context of being employed by a bot or a, an AI, that is a requirement to make us feel comfortable with it in the short term. I think it's interesting now that we've said this word anthropomorphize, I've always been keen on starting an agency that did talking dogs and stuff. And so it's probably a word I should really learn because maybe this is what the agency should be called. Yeah, it'd be a great agency name, a name nobody can say. That's high on the uh, the list of criteria for agency names, I think. Same criteria as the people that came up with Avatarify. Yes, definitely. Let's move on from things with silly names, but it's a cool piece of open source software that's been made available. And if you've got a, a gaming PC at home or a PC with a good graphics card, download it and have a play. It's good fun. Joe Rogan's no Joe Wicks. But he has just cut a deal with Spotify, hasn't he? He has indeed. Our second news story, Mr. Rogan has just announced a landmark deal. So maybe this is in our future. Who knows? I mean, I hope so, given it's rumoured to be worth 100 million. But Joe Rogan has announced that he's moving his podcast to Spotify. If you're not familiar with it, it's easily the biggest podcast in existence at the moment in terms of listeners. They reckon it gets about twice as many listeners as Sean Hannity does on Fox News in America, who's like one of the primetime anchors there, uh, live when it goes out. That's not including subsequent listens. So, you know, it's a massive coup really for Spotify to have landed this agreement and speaks to their ambition to kind of own podcasting as a format, I guess. And a couple of other interesting things about the deal. So when it was announced, the Spotify share price increased so much that it added just under $2 billion of market cap to their share value market capitalization, which is interesting. So clearly the markets think this is a big thing too. And I wonder if Joe sold himself a bit short for $100 billion, frankly, given the increase they saw there. Well, that's not quite how it works, but um, nonetheless... And the other thing is that they've announced that they're going to include video, which is a big part of Joe's show, in Spotify within the application, which they've never done before. So I left myself wondering if this might give us a hint of what's to come from Spotify, because if they're going to build all the video capabilities, surely they're going to go further than just podcasts, wouldn't you think? That's really fascinating, isn't it? Because it's got to be a signifier of what's to come. I've always felt that there was an opportunity for someone like Spotify to build a similar product around video. And I suppose the licensing issues seem challenging but then they seem just as challenging for music before spotify did it so i do wonder if there's room for somebody to come in and aggregate all the content i suspect not given the money that's going into the streaming wars and netflix and disney and you know all these guys but who knows right maybe there's a big partnership deal there to do or something like that i guess they could start with music videos though which obviously good shout yeah uh, vivo uh do some of that but i think almost with youtube and, and the associated platforms it's so vast and so much content gets uploaded that's so random that actually i think some people might crave that slightly more controlled environment mm. it's a good shout actually on music videos it's kind of obvious and staring me in the face but not something i considered 
maybe that's it. Maybe that's the future of, of, of MTV is on Spotify, as it were. Something that we have considered, Rob, before, uh, at some length, actually, and uh, laughed about, joked about, talked about, been shocked about, is the valuation of WeWork and the sort of shambles that was their IPO plan and some of the salacious details of how the CEO and founder was referenced numerous times in their investor deck and how he'd received money for the name and all kinds of things we've talked about before. It's not been quite the week that they would have imagined when they put that deck together with 169 mentions of their CEO's name. Few businesses have been as badly impacted as flexible working offices through this time when offices are closed, I suppose. But we work this month, I guess, this week, were revalued by SoftBank, their primary investor, at $2.9 billion, which sounds like a lot of money and, and is a lot of money. But when you consider that only a year ago, they valued the same business at $47 billion for that IPO that they were trying to foist on retail investors and failed to execute. Pretty insane reduction in shareholder value there. So WeWork is only a $3 billion business today, You know, perhaps a little bit more suitable, frankly, given it's essentially a real estate business. And the team at SoftBank have had to eat some humble pie on that one. So um, good to see, at least in some areas, the market's coming back down to earth a little bit and that sort of collective hallucination coming to an end. It is just crazy, though. It's such a vast change. And um, I was at a talk recently where a lot of the conversation was about the sharing economy generally and how in a lockdown or socially distanced era, the sharing of things starts to look a lot less nice. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And lots of those gig economy style business models suddenly aren't going to work as well as they perhaps were working before. I mean, some people argue that they weren't working particularly well for other reasons, I suppose. But yeah, the health side of them is is really is really under threat now. So, I mean, on the subject of health, our last news story is is a, an amazing proposition that's been made available by Valor Health. So, coronavirus obviously has created this need for testing. And it's one of the things that's been really slow to to catch up. I mean, understandably, right, the scale of the requirement is just far outstripped the available supply. And so there's two types of tests that people have been clamoring for. One is a test you get if you believe you have an active case. So that's, you know, you think you might currently have coronavirus, then you need that type of test, or sometimes known as a PCR test, I believe. And then the other uh, type of test is an antibody test, which is suitable around about 20 to 30 days after you've had an infection to see if your body has developed antibodies to fight further infection of the virus in the future and created immunity to it. And so neither of these things has been easy to get in the UK and in many other countries. And as of last weekend, finally in the UK, you're able to procure antibody tests relatively easily online where they send you a little pack, you prick your finger, put some blood in a vial and post it off to a lab and within about a week, you'll get a result. For those of you who listened to our last episode, you'll know that Rob believes that he has had coronavirus, had, had COVID-19, and therefore, this test is of interest to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm 100% sure I had it, but I'd love to get the factual clarification of that as I've been unable to get tested to date. And so one of our longtime friends of the podcast and previous double guest, actually, Mr. Peter Trainer, who recently took the job as the CEO of this business, Valor Health, ValorHealth.com, V-A-L-A, took a massive step and decided to offer these tests at cost price. And I'll quote him by saying, because it's the right thing to do. And so I won't name the competitors who are charging two and a half times more than Valor Health are 
if you want to get one of these tests done, go to their website, get one booked in, whether it's for an active case or for the antibody test and get it sorted out. We look forward to sort of hearing more about your results. We've got history with completing tests on the podcast and sharing our results of the tests. We do. Uh, Maybe I won't draw blood on the podcast for the purposes of the test, but I could do the big reveal, I suppose. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Exactly. We've done the, you know, blood thing. And and to be honest, it was slow and painful listening as well as painful doing. So uh, we can probably avoid it. Quite. So um, that's the news, Jim. It is the news. It is the news. It is the news. And in this sort of like, you know, new freeform world where we can kind of do what we want, we're kind of working with the format a little bit more loosely than normal. And you've added in a whole segment. I thought it would be fun to talk about the future of work. This is something that there's a lot of discussion about globally at the moment. And I hosted an event for Microsoft and Beamer this week talking about the future of work. We had some really interesting guests and and kind of shared their perspectives. And so I thought I'd like to almost interview you, Jim, on this. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and let's explore these themes together. So I'll tee off by saying that work has changed in ways that I don't think people could have imagined 12 months ago. This global pandemic has put pressure on businesses to reimagine and reinvent the way they enable their workforces to communicate with each other, to deliver the work that they need to do day to day. And there's all kinds of interesting technology solutions that are part of that. But actually, there's a really big cultural challenge that goes with that too. You know, people are having to deal with homeschooling their children alongside that in many cases, substandard working environments in small flats or, or, you know, uncomfortable chairs and all the rest of it. The whole deck has been thrown up in the air. And as people are starting to pick up those cards, it's really interesting to see how it's all fitting back together. So I'd love to share a few things that we found really useful at Wahai that might be of, of interest to other people. And I'd love to quiz you a bit on, on how Manifesto's approaching some of these challenges too. And so I guess, why don't we start by asking, like, what have your key learnings been? Like, what surprised you? What have you learned from this experience so far? I think one of the things I've learned is that communication is massively important. When you run a business and you've got a team, like keeping the dialogue open and like dialing up the level of transparency, because uh, this affects different people in different ways. So we've done a couple of staff surveys now, just waiting for the results of the second one. And broadly, I think there's those people who are ostensibly positive people who are kind of in control of their worlds and are able to sort of go, actually, there's a lot I like about this. There's those people that have a whole host of new challenges thrown at them, whether they're to do with their mental health, whether they're to do with homeschooling, as you mentioned. And so the main thing I've learned is, and that's been really reinforced, is everyone's different. Broadly, people will fall into some groupings. And this is something that has really divided where people sit on how they feel about it. And those have been quite clear and quite marked, those differences. So almost isolating those different groups of people within a team where perhaps they might have seemed a bit closer together before, really separating them out into different categories of people with different challenges and motivations and interesting, yeah. The other thing you touched on was was, was transparency and communication. The thing I've observed is that what's been going on has put a lot of pressure on businesses and on workplaces. And what's happened is that the businesses that already had things pretty well sorted out have thrived. And and businesses that perhaps weren't doing things quite as well have really struggled. And I think communication is a great example of that. You know, like we're very lucky at Wahive in that we worked out right at the beginning of our journey that the sort of business we wanted to work for 
was the business we were going to try and run. And that was one that was completely open about everything with with the team, right? So we're very transparent. We share all our figures every month, right down to net profit. There's no question anyone in our team could ask me or any other leadership team that we wouldn't answer. We make that very clear. And I think during times of uncertainty like this, it affords you a sort of level of trust that you just wouldn't get otherwise. So for us, that's just how we do it anyway, right? We haven't, haven't had to make any change there, but talking to other people, they're having to adapt to that because they realize that in these times of uncertainty, people are so unsettled that they have to change the way they communicate, right? So I think it's interesting how it seems to be highlighting and underlining some of the things that businesses did already that perhaps were strengths and maybe they didn't realize or, or, or have become even more meaningful as a result. What do you think? Yeah, and I think some of it's about cadence, right? So we've always been really transparent, but some things we only updated everyone on quarterly and people immediately wanted to know maybe on a more monthly or actually weekly basis how things stood or what types of decisions we might be taking. So some of it's about cadence. What what we've really seen is people don't really have the capacity for altogether new initiatives and some of the formats of the meetings and ways that we communicate, we've really had to change, make them shorter and create like a new rhythm without creating too much sense of change. So it's really been a balancing act of helping people know that there's a rhythm every single week, sharing information more regularly, and also just giving that sort of real sense that we know what we're doing, <laughs> which I think like at times, you know, I think we're really fortunate. I established like a business continuity daily call straight away and in my team, our COO, Rebecca, been awesome. And we've been able to then be able to really share updates and ask questions on a daily basis. And that team, as you say, because we already had a strong team, it was really just tweaks to what we already did. And that's enabled us to sort of move forward really well. And and we know it's been appreciated by the team. And we've also done like a few sort of softer things as well to make make it really clear that that people know that we care about them we're thinking of them so we sent everyone in the company a personal postcard for example just with a little note on it but so it's just like remembering that sort of like personal touch but i think what we've also realized is that there was probably quite a few things that we were being a little bit sloppy is perhaps not the word but there's some things that we could handle in kitchen conversations or or we were just being a bit slow about some things that actually to run the business effectively remotely, you just need to be better at. So we'd been talking about introducing e-signatures for our contracts for a very long time. We'd even done two reviews of e-signature software to decide which one we wanted. Well, guess what? Pretty much overnight, we moved to full e-signatures as part of this process. It's funny how, you know, guns ahead, as it were, you can... uh you can make these decisions very quickly. I was chatting to a doctor I know who said that the NHS has been trying to digitize its health records for like 15 years with huge resistance. And suddenly in a matter of weeks, they've been able to make huge steps forward as people have basically sort of gone, well, to hell with it, you know, let's just find the best solution, right? It's kind of like all bets are off and let's reimagine the way we do everything, which is great. So in the context of how technology changes our lives, I think tech is is a big part of that. You know, you talked about e-signature, that's a tech solution to a pretty traditional problem. I think a lot of businesses are really leaning on technology now more than they ever have before. Is there anything that you've seen or that you've used personally in the tech context that you think has made a big difference? So we're trialing lots of things. So one of the things that came up very quickly was members of the team feeling like there was just too many Zoom calls or too many interruptions. So uh, there's a couple of pieces of tech in that that space that we've been look at, looking at. But one of them is a non-tech solution, which is just agreeing a chunk of what we're calling golden time, where we don't book meetings. 
but we're also using some software integrated with our collaboration tools to do text-based stand-ups so people can submit their answers to their daily stand-up questions whenever they want and they all get centralized into our chat software. So I think there's a, a number of things like that where 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 tooling makes a difference and enables people to have the sort of working pattern that they want. And we're also trialing at the moment a plugin for Google Calendar called Clockwise that helps reschedule all of your meetings to free up greater blocks of time. So it sort of stacks them if your diary and the other person's diary allow it kind of thing. Exactly, yeah. Right, right. Interesting. Because that's been our biggest piece of feedback in the early days of this is that like, actually, I'm getting interrupted all the time. I'm not getting time to focus. So that's been our sort of phase two uh, from getting the rhythm established has then been trying to make the rhythm more productive for people. Uh, that's um, clockwise, you said. That's a, a good good, good shout, actually. Funnily enough, we've been having similar similar gripes with people and we've tried a few different things, but I've not seen that one. Look, we could do a whole episode on this and maybe this will be a, a running theme for the, the weeks ahead. But I think just to sort of round off for today on this idea of future of work, let's talk briefly about what we hope might not go back to normal afterwards, right? Let's talk about what are the things that have changed that maybe we hope will stick. I'm going to say that remote Alexa stock recordings are not one of those things. As much as I'm enjoying this, I really miss being able to give you a hug and take our, our guests for a beer afterwards. But there are lots of things that have been really positive. And I've definitely got a few ideas. But why don't you go first? What, what have you seen in the world or in your business that you really hope stays the way it's been as a result of what's going on? I suppose one of the things that's great is that the transparency was a strategic sort of plan this year anyway, to sort of like share more stuff more regularly. Like you, always really happy to answer any question when asked. And we did like very transparent quarterly updates, but we wanted people to take a greater level of sort of understanding and accountability for their role in the whole business. And it's really created the opportunity and the time to describe to people how the whole business works. And 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 I think what I really want to take forward is that sort of like, everyone having accountability and knowing what they're doing and us having the systems and processes that allow that because you need those to operate remotely and sometimes that sort of face-to-face presence means that you can get away with not doing certain things yeah totally so much is unwritten what i would say is that a challenge i think at the moment is helping everyone's expectations of what can happen when and what should stay and what should go is actually quite difficult so Rather than stay at home, the stay alert phase, people are wondering, does that mean the office is going to open again? Does that mean we're going to be back at work before long? And what different people's wants and desires for what that is, is actually quite a complex business problem to manage because Mm -hmm. that's where people's desires could really diverge and people's desires of what they want to keep or what they want to go back to might not all be the same. Because what this process has done is it really brings out the personalities and the wants of individuals And so what was historically perhaps a cohesive place to work with a single mind based around a model that we all worked in has created this opportunity for reflection and people to think about what they want in future. And so we've already had like people say they don't want the same working pattern when they come back. And so I guess I would say like, I really want to keep the opportunity to reflect and make work the thing you want it to be, but it's definitely going to cause me some challenges over the next few months. Really interesting. From my perspective, I really hope some of the evolution of the way we use technology to make remote working better sticks because I think we've always had a business that encourages remote working but very few people took us up on that and I think that was probably for two reasons one because our office is an amazing environment we've spent a lot of time and and energy and money on you know creating this beautiful place where people really enjoy being not just because of 
the environment, but also because they get to be with each other. You know, so I think that is one reason. But the other reason, which is the thing I really hope that we can we can keep, is until this lockdown happened, if you weren't in the office, you were a bit of a second class citizen in terms of your engagement and the way you were included in things. You know, the way we dealt with remote participants in meetings, the way Absolutely. all of our communication was structured, you know, so much of our culture revolved around those sort of inverted commas, water cooler chats in the kitchen over coffee breaks and things like that. And that completely alienates a remote team. And actually, we've got one guy who works full time remote normally, and he's loving it, right? For him, this is the best thing that's ever happened because he finally feels like a fully kind of equal member of the team. And, and that's been really interesting. So culturally and also I suppose leveraging technology I really hope we can keep some of that uh, as we go back to a more normal routine and and really make it feel comfortable for people if they do want to change their working patterns as you say and, and work remotely more often as well. During this I've actually hired a second fully remote employee so I guess there's an implicit statement of intent there that we're going to do more of this. Absolutely. Thanks, Jim. I think that'll do for our future work segment. It's been really interesting hearing how you're coping with some of these challenges. And, and let's revisit this in, in the months ahead and, and see how it's evolving. It's a good serious topic, but we still managed to keep it optimistic. Now, segueing over to the next thing feels difficult, if I'm honest. But this week, I've joined together our community spirit plus Jim's local stories of the week section. The anticipation is palpable. Let's have it. Do you even remember that we created this section? No, I have no idea what you're about to say or do, but I'm looking forward to it. Well, the idea was that we'd have uh, some sense of, you know, good things that are happening that people are doing during the lockdown. Oh, yes. And then because I've moved to Bristol, we also added in a local news element. And I've joined the two together in a beautiful mesh. And our guest last month and also this month also happened to be from Bristol. So it's been a bit of a Bristol loving, hasn't it? So I'm sure some local news will feature again today. A Bristol loving, yeah. The news from Bristol this week is that a poet who specialises in health and well-being has said that poetry could help people feel less alone during the pandemic. Beth from Bristol, she created the Poetry Machine in 2015 to help people put their feelings into words. And do you know what I've done, Rob? What have you done, Jim? I've put my feelings about Alexa Stop into words. Would you like to hear that? Yes, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear that. and I certainly would. To be honest, I was going to do this even if the answer was no. And from the tone in your voice, I'm not sure your yes is a yes, but I'm going to go with it anyway. So here we go. <clears throat> I'll clear my throat. Even in lockdown, I'm still Jim and he's still Rob. A global pandemic. Life has changed a lot. We're stuck in our homes with time on our hands, new skills to learn, time to make plans. The Friday night Zoom is the new norm. Unprecedented times, ideas will be born. Bandwidth the oil to help us plot. And as the kitchen timer goes off, we shout, Alexa, stop. Are you moved? Uh... I can, yeah, hear the, I can hear the birds <laughs> tweeting in the background. No, I'm really nicely done there, mate. That's, uh, that's very moving. It's almost structurally correct, although I'm no poetry expert. I'm being mean. I think it was amazing. And, uh, I did write it in, in 10 minutes before we came on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm teasing you and trying to make you feel self-conscious. It was a lovely poem, very well read. And I think it's really nice seeing how people's creative output in any context is bringing them together during what's going on. 
whenever I hear someone talk about poetry, I always remember a quote about poetry, which is now going to sound a little bit disparaging. Maybe I should have got it in before the poem. Do you want to hear the quote? Are you interested? Hit me. So the quote is, truth is like poetry. And most people fucking hate poetry. It's beautiful, Rob. Beautiful. What I'd like from you is a commitment to write a short poem about Alexa Stop for our next episode. I will do that. Yeah. I feel like that's enough ruthless mocking of your really actually quite good poem. Thank you so much for sharing that. And obviously our guest today is Natalie Fee, who also has a poem for us. So I look forward to hearing hers a bit later today. Any final thoughts, Jim, before we crack on with our interview? I think we should crack on with our interview. Sounds good, Jim. Let's welcome Natalie into our virtual studio and hear all about the amazing work she's doing with City to Sea, her new book and all of her amazing adventures. Sounds good. So today we're interviewing Natalie Fee, who's an environmental campaigner, has set up the charity City to Sea, which campaigns against plastic pollution and also runs Refill HQ, actually, which is an app. So definitely one for us to talk about. She's got a book called How to Save the World for Free, which we're all interested to know how to do. She's an agony aunt for sustainability, and she is a fellow Bristolian. Welcome to the studio, (laughs) Natalie. Thanks very much for having me. Very exciting. Good to have you here. We can't tease you off, Mike, about claiming to be a Bristolian for having lived there for two weeks and then you use it in your intro without mentioning it. So uh, <laughs> That's are you hard, feeling fully well. indoctrinated into West Country life? I seem to remember 10 minutes ago you encouraging me to own it. That's true. <laughs> I'm just going to throw this in there. I was the Bristol Woman of the Year last year. So I have the qualifications to be able to say, welcome to Bristol, Jim. I feel like you could be my Bristol mentor. <laughs> So how long has it taken you to go from new person in Bristol to woman of the year in Bristol? That would have been seven years. That was my seventh year. Do you know, that's pretty quick. I've been here eight years now, yeah. That's a quick rise from newbie to woman of the year. Well, I'm, I'm quite social. <laughs> I, you know, and I guess a lot of the stuff that I've done has been quite visible and I've made quite a racket, so it's been hard for people to ignore me. And, Jim, you know, you, you, like, you like a goal, so... Uh... There you go. I mean, it's a big goal for me to be woman of the year inside seven days. <laughs> um, there's going to be some difficult and challenging steps on that journey. But um, yeah, I do like a challenge. I suppose let's kick off by sort of taking your journey a little bit back to sort of where, it, well, not where it started. I don't want to go to back to birth, but you used to be a recruiter. Yes. So, so, so your world now of, of, of sustainability person, author is pretty vastly different to Headhunter, right? making up for it yes what do you remember of, of those days what age are your audience <laughs> you can say whatever you want well I mean it was pretty hedonistic and I was between the ages of maybe 19 and 22 back in the late 90s when the internet had just been invented and it was very much like England does Wolf of Wall Street <laughs> <laughs> do we do it as well or was it that's a great image I'm immediately excited about the rest of the story please carry on I mean definitely not like we didn't do it well I mean but it was just it was you know we were earning a lot of money it was all very exciting and 
tech was just really, it felt like tech was just really kicking off at the end of the 90s. And, you know, I'd, we had to send postcards out to software engineers to see if they were available for work and for contracts because we couldn't, we didn't email them. It's just like amazing. And I remember when the, the intranet was invented at work and you could send a message to someone in another office, which basically started all sorts of affairs and sordid things going on. <laughs> That's what intranets were invented for, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we, we all know why video streaming like took off. Um, well, why do you all think Slack's so successful? <laughs> so can you remember the moment or or was it a moment or was it a, something that grew over time where you felt that you really needed to do something else or you needed to escape that world? I felt quite conflicted the whole way through because I've always had this sort of deep connection to nature and love of nature and also very spiritual too for some reason even though I've got complete atheist parents who aren't hippies whatsoever very conventional sort of 1980s upbringing I grew up with this very kind of open spiritual sense and connection to nature so I did have this weird disconnect between my day job and then who I was when I got home from work really and after a couple of years I just started to feel like well, I had all the material success, like the house and the car and, you know, the sort of extra income, it wasn't making me happy. And I was like, well, this isn't what life's about. So at that point, I gave it all up and, and went off to find myself in Ecuador. And did you find yourself in Ecuador or did you find yourself in a sort of car park of a Marks and Spencers <laughs> somewhere at a later point? Yeah, I think I just found another version of myself there. You know, I don't think I, it wasn't particularly transformational. But what was really cool was I think it's really important for people to get away from where they grew up and their family and their circle of friends and to break free from that because you do, yeah. you do develop a different perspective. And for me, I saw firsthand sort of open mines that were poisoning local villages and I saw the effect of that on indigenous cultures. I saw deforestation. I saw big corporates sort of giving indigenous families powdered milk and sugar to replace breast milk. And I really am grateful for the things that I saw there. But I was mostly interested in the South American men, it must be said. And so somewhere in the midst of all of this, you ended up landing on ocean plastic, it seems, right, as a, as a cause that you're very close to. Is that something that sort of emerged over time after that realization it sounds like you you, know, you mentioned a lot of different stuff there that clearly is is hugely impactful and, and are all great causes right that in and of themselves could be a life's mission why plastic what happened in your life that led you to that cause well that was many years later so I did have a sort of roundabout career path sort of between coming back from traveling and then landing on a career if you like as a, an environmentalist but for me, I was working in the media at the time in Bristol and I came across the trailer of the film Albatross and I literally just saw the sort of minute and 30 seconds trailer and of these incredible albatross chicks that were dying in their nests with their bellies full of plastic and that was the moment for me. It was just so devastating and I was so upset by it, like more than I'd ever been upset by any environmental issue before. And I knew that that 
reaction, that feeling in me was so strong that I couldn't ignore it and I needed to do something about it. It wasn't my love of the oceans because actually I was terrified of the sea and, and still am a little bit scared of the sea. So I'm not this like ocean rowing um, right. marine biologist campaigner type. I'm, I'm literally had no relationship with the ocean whatsoever. So it was very much the albatross chicks and seeing everyday plastic that I was using inside those creatures that made me realize that things were going really badly wrong. So what took you from that to doing something as definite as creating City to Sea? Well, I didn't really plan that to happen. I started off randomly with a music video thinking that, you know, let's change the world and get all the kids on board by doing a cool pop song. It wasn't about plastic, but the video was about plastic. And then I realised when that only had about 4,000 views and raised about £17 for a charity that that wasn't going to change the world. So I went on from there and decided to do a bit more locally here in Bristol. It's one of the hardest things ever, really, that that there are a lot more charity records than there are successful charity records. (laughs) (laughs) Having worked in both the music industry and in the charity sector for a long time, I've I've seen a lot of charity songs that no one has ever heard of. And it it, it does seem to be really when, not that I'm, you know, the 4,000 people. So who were you singing on this? Jim, mine was really good. I mean, that's the the problem is it was really good. I mean, I feel like we're going to need to dig this out now. Okay, yeah, we're going to have to play it. Let's play it for your listeners. You can have it royalty free or whatever it is well i'll tell you what uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we will hold you to that but also to be honest we'll double what it originally raised so the 17 pounds heading to city to sea <laughs> on the back of us playing yes. some of it yes <laughs> i like i i can say i single-handedly or at least with rob made a, a charity record twice as successful yeah you can and i'll put that on my application for women of the year for bristol <laughs> yeah. it'll serve you well i kind of felt like Although it was a flop, it was for me, it was just a step to do something. And that led to the next thing, which was then looking at what we could do in Bristol that could stop plastic ending up in the river and going out to the Bristol Channel. And could whatever we did here in Bristol be replicated around the UK and perhaps beyond? So that's sort of where we started off in 2014, 2015. One of the things that you're known for is being a green agony aunt. So I'm going to challenge Rob to come up with a green problem that he faces in his day-to-day life. But I'm going to give him enough time to do that where I'm going to ask you a green-related agony ant question. And so, dear Natalie, I've seen lots of people talk about leading a environmentally moderate lifestyle. What would you consider a moderate lifestyle to be? Hi, Jim. <laughs> Great question. Thanks. Um, moderate. I think there are some things that you can do to be very green, which don't require that much of a change or sacrifice in your life that you could say is us. So that could be like moderate changes, but actually kind of depends on how attached you are to things like flying around the world and eating steaks. Yeah, well, let's try and change my life or let's see if I have changed it myself over the last couple of years. So hit me with some things I could do and I'll I'll, I'll tell you how acceptable they are to me. Okay, so I would say for for moderate, um, I would say only eat red meat once a month. So, you know, make red meat a, a treat that you have like one Sunday or one Friday night or something. In terms of flying, I would say 
have no more than one flight a year, ideally short to mid-haul, not a long-haul flight. Long-haul flight really only once every five to ten years. And make sure you've got green energy. I think actually there's a lot I can do there. My work has caused me to travel quite a lot historically, but I've actually cut that right down. But there are still cases where I might do long haul. I think that links to a question. I'm going to give Rob just a few more minutes. But to... I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm raring to go. I'm wondering when you're going to stop rambling about meat and travel so I can get my question in. <laughs> okay, well, in which case, we'll come back to my second question. <laughs> yeah, that told you, Jim. I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to my agony aunt question. I'm going I'm to get it in now, and then and then and then you can carry on. So, what's your agony aunt question, Rob? Dear Natalie, my name's Rob, age fourteen. I love the planet and, and particularly love technology. I wonder what technology you have seen that you think is making a real difference to your cause with ocean plastic. Hi, Rob. Lovely to hear from you and how exciting that you've got such a passion for the environment already at age 14. I hope your mum and dad are listening to you and making changes. In terms of technology, well, I mean, it depends what kind of technology you're talking about, but I'm very excited by things like solar technology and renewable energy and the things that actually mean that we can harness energy from the sun and from wind and from tidal so in terms of engineering and those kind of technologies I'm very excited about that also in terms of our food we can actually make food out of thin air or rather just water and microbes and and some special hydrogen something or other Another thing is it's doing as well as we can grow meat in a laboratory now without having to hurt any animals. So there are some really exciting developments in that sense. And then generally, if you're just looking to live a more zero waste life and a life that puts a bit less pressure on the planet, then there are some really cool apps that you can use. I'll go first with our amazing refill app. So you don't have to use plastic bottled water. You can just download the refill app and find places to refill for free. And that's also developing now where you can use the app to find your nearest zero waste shop. So you don't have to buy things wrapped in pointless plastic. The Olio food sharing app is another really good one. So if you've got a leftover cabbage in your fridge, which you don't think you're going to eat because you're 14 and who likes cabbage when you're 14, you can Find a neighbour, you can advertise your cabbage on the app and one of your neighbours can come round and turn it into a really delicious coleslaw or something. So that's the Olio app. And another one is if you're buying clothes, there's an app called Good On You and you can see how ethical your clothes are, which means what kind of material has been used and what kind of practices they are, how fairly they're treating their workers and things like that. So those are three apps that you could use. Jim, uh, back, back to you. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Would you have wanted the cabbage? What are your general feelings about cabbage? I mean, age 14, I probably wouldn't have been too keen on the cabbage, admittedly. But now, I, I, you know, a coleslaw, it's a great shout. Cabbage as a base for vegetarian sausages, of course. And mash is a great shout as well. You know, limitless possibilities. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I'm, I'm pleased with about that. Very good. Until 14-year-old Rob had that need. I guess I was going to take you on to... If someone has a, a working life that means that they can't live up to some of those sort of moderate things, is offsetting that 
a good thing to do? Do you have any opinions about where that's appropriate or whether certain schemes are better than others? Or do you think there are other solutions that businesses should look at for travel of their employees? For unavoidable travel, I mean, obviously, I think one of the things that the current global pandemic has is teaching us or that we're learning from this time is that actually a lot of meetings can be done virtually and we can show up and deliver a talk or have an engaging meeting with people without traveling to the other side of the world to do it but it's not going to stay that way forever so in terms of like unavoidable travel I think companies should be offsetting all of their co2 emissions as a business In fact, I think businesses should double offset their emissions. So they offset and then they double it because the rate at which a lot of these offsetting programs actually draw the carbon out of the atmosphere, it's not really fast enough. For for, We need to be curbing emissions at the same time as sequestering CO2 from the atmosphere. Some projects like blue carbon projects so like seagrass beds and seaweed farms they suck carbon out of the atmosphere very quickly and they can provide food and they don't require fresh water so I'm very excited about those so if you are offsetting I would say those are the ones to focus on the other angle to flying really and unavoidable flights is there's a campaign called a freeride.org which is putting pressure on the government here in the UK to put a tax on flying because currently aviation fuel is the only fuel which isn't taxed in the UK, which is why we can fly to, you know, Brussels for 50p or something. But actually, if we had a a tax on flying, it would mean that we'd all get one free flight a year, which would be like for our family holiday or to go and see our relatives in another country. But after that, we would start having to pay a flight tax. And I think that would make a big difference to companies. They would think twice about how often they were sending their employees around the world. Yeah, it would get to be just the sort of more important things. And then on changing diet, there's different views on how long it takes to form a habit, but from 21 days or for more complex habits longer. Have you got any tips for for, for people that sort of helps them do that more easily? Because people, I think, get stuck in a pattern of eating the same, same sorts of meals and same sorts of things. What I've always found helpful is to do it for a month. So literally doing Veganuary in January or doing Fish Free February in February or we should make one up for March, Moo Free March. You do it for a month because you think, oh, it's okay, I can cope with it for a month. I I find um, Plastic Free July is brilliant for that because it's hard, but actually you think it's okay, it's only for a month. And then at the end of that month, you keep some of those habits going. You don't revert back to all of the old ones so I think if you are like really into your meat and it's not like saying you're never going to have it again it's just sort of saying like okay I'm gonna go meat free for a month and actually I don't necessarily recommend that everybody does go vegan because I don't think it suits everybody's blood type but I do think that we need to be eating a predominantly plant-based diet and eating meat sparingly So, yeah, I think people could eat a lot less of it. You know, if you're having a steak, then you could have a smaller one (laughs) and have it less often. You can wean yourself off it. This interview is part of a series that we're doing during the pandemic, as we've mentioned already. You know, there's a lot of negativity flying around about all the stuff that's going on, but there are some really positive signs as well and some really interesting things that have come from this. And one of them is 
you know, people are learning how to cook, right? We just talked about food. I think a lot, a lot of people I talk to and a lot of the kind of posts I see on social media are people discovering the joy of cooking at home. And I think that's going to stick, right? I think that is a meaningful change that's not going to go away afterwards. I think remote working is another area which is going to cut down on travel and will have a lasting impact. I wondered, Natalie, what positive things are you seeing at the moment as a result of what's going on? Is there anything that you've bumped into where you think, oh, wow, that's really positive and might actually make a meaningful change in the future once we're all back to normal society as well? I think that similar to you on those points, and also I've just been very heartened by the community coming together and the resilience, the networks that have been formed in communities. So like the WhatsApp groups that have sprung up, supporting each other, sharing shopping trips and sharing tools and resources. And that for me has just been incredible. And I know that there's a website, I can't remember what it was called at the moment, that can link you up with WhatsApp groups in your area. And if there isn't one, then you can join one. And I think people have formed relationships with their local shops, with their neighbours. And these are the kind of things that are hugely important for us going forward into the climate emergency. And, you know, when our focus shifts back to the journey that we've got ahead of us we're going to need our neighbours and we're also I think going to have a, a better understanding of our food sources and where our food is coming from and the supply chains and things like that so for me I hope and I think that our connection to our local communities will carry through. Has this, so in terms of that sort of systemic change, or maybe that sort of like government level change, do you think the commitments that we get sort of internationally are just not enough? Certainly recently, it feels like with Trump in power in the US, maybe we've taken a backward step in various ways, (laughs) Um, whether that's cutting funding for the World Health Organization or not committing to environmental commitments. It's beyond catastrophic having someone like that in government leading one of the world's biggest countries (laughs) is it the world's biggest anyway it you know that kind of thing is terrifying you know but then we focus and we look at people like Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand who is leading compassionately and making great environmental changes and we see more feminine or you know more female leaders around the world that are actually making those changes And at a state level in the US, there are changes still being made, you know, despite Trump's policies, there are still things being done at state level. So I don't think any of our governments really are acting fast enough, with the exception of of a couple, maybe. But, you know, certainly here in the UK, like we just heard at the time of recording this this morning, that the UK is going to delay the banning of straws and cotton buds and stirrers and the sort of, you know, things that Europe's doing so that's hugely disappointing to hear that but in terms of climate yeah I mean coronavirus has shown us that when we slow down and we don't travel as much that CO2 emissions drop so that's the kind of thing we need to be doing but in a way that enhances people's lives it's done through a collective feeling of this is the right thing for us to be doing not through fear and panic you touched on purpose-led businesses and and that definitely is a trend but i suppose that that's a sort of push and a pull right some of that is a business's response to what people they're trying to employ 
expect of them which which talks to that sort of ground up movement and some of that is perhaps a younger set of and more diverse set of leaders coming through that just have a sort of slightly more broad world view so I suppose there's these things balanced against each other where there's perhaps some things where we've gone backwards but overall perhaps a sense that this is now really much higher on the sort of agenda of people and companies we are making a change in in a meaningful way do you feel that? Yeah, it is meaningful and it is, I think it is genuine. I think especially in the younger companies, I think the ones that struggle are like the giant corporations that have just got so many bad practices attached to them that they can't possibly sort of claim to be a values-driven company when they are still causing so much destruction. But they try to, by running nice greenwashy campaigns and donating lots of money to good initiatives, but those businesses take longer to turn around. I agree, Natalie. And I think one of the trends I've seen recently that really encourages me in that vein is a couple of organisations of real size, Microsoft being one, have committed not just to neutralise their ongoing impact, but have said they're going to go back to when they started the business and make good all the consumption to date, right, that they've ever drawn down in terms of carbon from travel and all their premises and stuff like that. And that is a massive financial commitment and a real signal in the shift from almost that sort of greenwashing version of, well, you know, this is a carbon neutral product. Let's not talk too much about what we've done for the last 20 years, right? And, and sort of saying, no, no, look, we really stand for this. Our place is to make our own business neutral or, or positive, right? Back to when we began it. And actually then to also lean on our supply chain and things like B Corp are becoming much more prevalent. Mm. And, you know, the impact and the knock-on effect of companies doing those things is their supply chains then have to improve, which have multiplicative effects because then every other company they sell things to also gets the benefit. For example, on our Offset Earth platform, we had a customer sign up yesterday called Founders Intelligence, and they decided to go neutral back seven years as they signed up. So not just paying the monthly subs to be up to date now. They asked us. We didn't even make that like a thing that we were trying to sell them. They said, oh, how much would it cost to neutralize the business back to the beginning of when they started? And I think it was I think it was 1,500 tons of CO2 and 14,000 trees or something was what we worked out was their impact back to the beginning. And, and they were happy to pay that. So... Do you think maybe that shift is starting where even the really big companies in some cases are starting to say, well, hang on, actually, this is more than just a marketing campaign. Maybe the leaders of those businesses are, are driving that change. I don't know. It just it feels to me like we're just at this point where it's really starting to shift finally, uh, having waited my whole life for this. And it's like it's just <laughs> starting to happen. Would you agree or do you think I'm um, Since you were 14. <laughs> yeah, since 14. Do you think maybe I'm being overly optimistic or do you see like real systemic change as well? I still feel like I'm in a bit of a yo-yo place with that as I see these big commitments and big changes which do bring me a sense of hope. Um, and then I see, you know, for example, is it Shell or BP that said they were going to be carbon neutral by 2050 or something like that, but they're still drilling in thousands and thousands of places and still exploring oil in thousands of places. I watched a film, I think an oldie but a goodie called Merchants of Doubt the other day. I do really recommend it. And just the web of deceit and the protection around the oil companies and the fossil fuel industry is is so dense that it will take something really big to undo that. So things like ecocide, like, you know, if we pass the law of ecocide, then that could be a game changer. So we could be on the tipping point of 
some big changes. What is ecocide? Some people won't have heard of that. So the law of ecocide is essentially where you can sue companies for ecocide in the same way that people can be held account for genocide. So what this could actually mean would be that companies would have to be accountable and they could be sued for causing harm to the earth. So for example, oil spills and general sort of extraction and mining, things that have poisoned waterways and that are damaging the earth, tar sands, things like that. So so yeah, it's very exciting and and it's kind of close to working. There's um I think the website is called stopecocide.earth or if just people looked up ecocide that there's different ways they can find out about that but that just needs a couple more countries to sign up to and it could become an international law that feels like systemic change to me you know that sort of stuff are kind of the tools that we'll need to start to hold some of these organizations to account you know you talked about that change of leadership at a a government level and, and you know the sort of improving gender diversity at a government level which is great but I think for me there's like this bigger trend which is really us the people on this call you you know yourself and Jim and I and and people who were born in the 80s and 90s are starting to get into power right that shift is happening and it's kind of a generational thing and it feels to me like on the whole the generation that's coming in is much more interested in solving these problems than the one that we're replacing and that's a big generalization but one that I think stands up So my hope is that just that sort of groundswell of ambition that we're all bringing into those roles of power will will create significant change in and of itself. And maybe that's why we're starting to see this stuff kick in. I don't know, but it certainly feels like it's a positive force. And I think there's something there around our investments as well, sort of, well, most of us born in the 80s, or I was actually born in the late 70s, us sort of in that era, we don't have the same kind of... I don't know, investments and the kind of wealth that others have had. So actually, I think we're more focused on what there is to lose in terms of the earth that sustains us. And that's becoming more important than some portfolio of money somewhere. So if we're going to talk about what your focus is at the moment and what you're working on over the next few months, because you've you've got two books, you've got a charity, you've got speaking engagements, I imagine as woman of the year in Bristol, you have to uh, open new businesses with a ribbon and things like that. Sadly not. I never got to do any of that. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll open a business at some point in, and ask you to come and open it. <laughs> I, was only, I was only for a year, Jim. I'm not woman of the year anymore. But no, um, it was a, it was I'll, a great I'll, year. I'll opened by former woman of the year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, right now... My focus is on promoting the book. I'm currently doing the updates for the paperback version, which will be out in 2021. That's an exclusive. I haven't told anyone out in the world that that's happening yet. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's okay. You've got an exclusive. So I'm doing the updates, which is actually quite a good lockdown project for me. I'm, I'm touch wood healthy and in the position where I can work from home. So I'm doing my uh, my book updates um, and and helping city to see kind of pivot has become the word of the of the month. I think everyone's talking about pivoting their businesses. So yeah, just sort of supporting the team. But we've got an amazing CEO Rebecca who's steering the team through this time, and and I'm writing rather a lot of silly poems, playful poems. I'm not going to call them silly poems, playful poems. And would you like to end, uh, as we wrap this up, on reading as one of your poems or singing as your charity record? 
<laughs> I'm definitely not going to sing you my my song, but I will send it to you so we could maybe we could go out on that maybe. Oh, um, I've, I've already sorry. found it. Don't you worry. Have you? Well, which one? Have you found Burden? Oh, I found the one that's linked on your bio on your website. So uh, I don't know which All one right. that is. Hopefully, that is Burden. Um, I would I would read you a poem. Why not? I actually just wrote one this morning. We'd love that. So it's hot. It's hot off the press, and um, I think it's because Earth Day, if we're talking about this in the past, would have been on the twenty second of April, and I wrote this for Earth Day. It's called "If the Earth Had a Birthday." If the Earth had a birthday, it would be so much fun. A day every year to shine back at the sun. We'd light up the skies with an "I love you." Hop up mountains dressed like a kangaroo. We dance in the forests and skip in the streams, sing songs to the shadows and shush our machines. No one would go out to work that day. We'd wake up with the light and get ready to play. Bake green and blue cakes that taste really nice, but that make a big bang when you cut off a slice. Everyone would write down the wild bits they treasure, the things on the earth that give them the most pleasure, like soft mossy carpets or babbling brooks, or the flowers that grow in the pavement's nooks. The buses and trains would be free to ride, so everyone could go out to the countryside. There'd be giant picnics and parties galore. The granddads and grannies would roll on the floor. The doctors and nurses who couldn't join in would have rainbow biscuits in an earth-shaped tin, and anyone too poorly to go outside would be given a sunflower to keep by their side. The whole day would be gentle and kind and good. At the seaside, the river, the park, or the wood. We'd give thanks for the wonderful stuff the world brings, for the air and the rain and the oceany things, for the soil and the bugs and the trees and the smells and the daisies and dandelions and watery wells. It would be a day filled up with singing and rest. Of all the days in the year, it'd be simply the best. When everyone joins in and remembers to say, "Oh, glorious planet, have a happy birthday." Well done. <laughs> Beautiful. Really good. That's really, really nice. And uh, the first poem we've ever had on Alexa Stop, it might be the last poem. Uh, and, and, and you know what? I think it was a fitting one, if that's the case. And, and our, our second exclusive, I think, of this interview. So Definitely. Uh, and if, I feel like it's moved us slightly more highbrow. We're getting closer to a slot on, a, on, on Radio 4 with something intellectual. I mean, certainly the delivery was very radio for, and I mean that as, as a as a as a high compliment indeed, high oh, praise indeed. Well, it's very um, very lovely to share it with you and your listeners. I feel very honoured to be sharing it with you. Lovely. And that was our second remote Alexa stop. I thought it went pretty well, Jim. Don't you? It was a delight. Really lovely chatting to Natalie. Do you know what? We sort of threw away the format a bit on this episode. I enjoyed that. Unprecedented times, as every email I get seems to say. But, you know, why not, right? If ever we can change things up a bit, now's the time to do it. I had a great time today. Really nice to meet Natalie, albeit virtually, and hear about the amazing work she's been doing. As ever, we're incredibly appreciative of our partners, DisruptionHub.com. And we're also really excited to remind you all that we'll be featuring on London Podcast Radio soon. So if you're interested in catching us and a load of other great podcasts, check out what they're doing over at London Podcast Radio. Stay alert and we'll see you soon.